and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I hope you're all having a good week. I have a really funny story for you all, a lesson to get dressed on all occasions. I finished work early one afternoon and got home, had a shower, thought, why don't I get into my PJs early? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. What a treat. Make a cup of tea, lie on the couch. All I had to do that, the only job I had to do in the afternoon was to pick my daughter up from school where I don't even have to get out of the car. It's literally drive by, she jumps in, head home. On this glorious afternoon, I went to drive by my daughter's school and pick her up and yep, you guessed it. She wasn't there. 10 minutes passed, 20 minutes passed, and I started to think maybe something was wrong. At this point, I also realized that I am in my worst pajamas, no underwear on, completely barefoot. Oh my God. I'm like, I think I should have got dressed. I would love to hear your stories of when this has happened to you. Help a girl out, pop it in the Challenges That Change Us Facebook community group. We did find my daughter 40 minutes later. There had been a mix-up and she'd walked to grandma's house. And needless to say, next time I finish work early, I will at least put on trackies and a bra to pick my kids up. Anyway, it's good to have a laugh. I mean, if we can't laugh at ourselves, who can we laugh at, right? Today, we have an incredible interview with a brave, strong woman and mother who is talking about her childhood experience of sexual abuse and the process both her and her sister have just been through in the justice system. Please stop this episode if it is not the right episode for you today, and we will see you next week. Our priority is always keeping you and our guests psychologically safe. This episode talks about sexual abuse, incest, and the grueling process of the justice system. If you would like to talk to someone, please call Lifeline on 131114, or you can call Brave Hearts on 1800 272 831. Aggie was 14 when she was sexually abused by her uncle. She talks about her experience, the grooming process, some of the therapy options she has tried, some resources for both victims and offenders. She tells us of the day she read a pamphlet on sexual abuse and realized something terrible had happened that shouldn't have. We can take so much away from this conversation. What happens when disclosure is swept under the carpet? How often victims take on the responsible role and how far the justice system has to go. I mentioned in episode 20 with Virginia Tapscott the importance of educating our children. I cannot stress this enough. Aggie talks about reading a pamphlet and realizing that something terrible had happened to her. Likewise, I remember sitting in year 10 English class and the teacher started talking about the incest that was in the novel that we were reading. And that's when I realized something terrible had happened to me. Imagine if we knew about sexual abuse and the grooming process before these events actually happened. 
Would it be enough to change the outcome? We will never know. But one thing I do know is that I'm not prepared to run that risk with my children, and I hope you don't either. If we educate our children, then we can have a shot at stopping family sexual violence and providing pathways for children who need our help early, whether that be a victim or a perpetrator. This is a story of why we never want to sweep it under the carpet, why we never assume it won't happen again. If you have been affected by sexual abuse or you want more information, we will have resources in the show notes and there is also loads of resources on our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us. It's under the guide section. If at any point you feel triggered or you want to talk to someone, please call Lifeline on 131114 or Bravehearts on 1800 272 831. Before we get into the episode, I just want to talk to you about the word grooming. It is often used to describe a behavior by an offender towards a child. This behavior is focused on increasing opportunities for sexual abuse to occur and reducing the child's ability to tell others what is happening. Recently, practitioners and researchers have asked that the word grooming be replaced with the word entrapment because it more accurately reflects the experience of the child. This information has come from the government, newsouthwales.gov.au website, And in the purposes of this episode, we will be talking about the word grooming, but just so you know that there is a little bit of a shift happening in industry around that language. Let me introduce you to Aggie. So welcome, Aggie, to the podcast, Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, Ali, thanks so much for having me here. I always love to start the podcast with a bit of a different question, which is if you were to use an animal to describe yourself, what animal would you choose and why? That's a really hard question, uh, but I think at this age and stage, at 41, and with recent things going on, I am a lioness. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason that I feel like I'm a lioness at the moment is um, just for that feeling really protective, but feeling also really strong and having really having a strong voice, just being able to roar when needed. Yeah. I love that analogy. And I think, you know, if we think about what we're going to be talking about today, which the listeners don't know yet, I think that's going to tie in so beautifully with, you know, what you've been through in these last couple of decades, particularly in the last couple of years. I think you would have really needed to call on your lioness in that stage, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. And do you have a favorite place or a favorite room in your house when you were growing up? Uh, we, we moved around a little bit growing up, but just what comes to mind when you ask that question is we lived at Tugulua in Queensland and we were out on uh, 40 acres and we were sort of in the middle of the Brisbane Valley. And so to one side out of my bedroom window, I would look over towards the mountains that on the other side of the mountains is actually Somerset Dam. And in my bedroom, I would just often have this old couch that I would read on and look out the window and look at those mountains. And yeah, I just loved it. It was a really peaceful place. And you moved around a little bit, didn't you, when you were growing up? Yes, we had, uh, I had my early childhood up in Kimley's. And um, then when my mum and dad's marriage broke down, we moved down to Queensland, which is where my mum's family are, but we just moved in a lot of different houses, even though we had 10 years into Gulawa. And then, yeah, then my mum's second marriage broke down and then we were sort of, yeah, in Ipswich and Brisbane or, yeah, just we sort of became a bit homeless actually by that stage. 
Yeah. Have you ever counted how many places you've lived? Have you ever tried to add that up? No, I haven't tried to count all the different houses that I've lived in. I mean, we were lucky that we had those 10 years into Bulawa that were actually quite stable in terms of primary school and things. We just lived in lots of different houses. I only ask because I um, grew up in lots of different houses. I think I changed school or house every year of my life for the first 16 years and there's not very many people that I come across that had so many moves. Um, And I remember trying to count it one day and it's like I lived here for two weeks and I lived there for a week and I lived here for three months. And (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 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 You spent some time up in Kununurra? Yes, I've had about a third of my life in Kununurra. I had my early childhood, so we moved down just before I turned six. And then I went back up when I was 21, turning 22, and then I had another 10 years up there. I was cooking on a station when I first went up and studying nursing externally. And then I've nursed sort of Kununurra, Halls Creek, Derby, Broome, yeah, as well as working on the stations, yeah. Does the Outback have a special place in your heart or because it's kind of very different up there? I mean, not everyone, not all of our listeners will have been to that part of Australia. Is it a part of you or it's just a place you've been? Oh, no, no, no. It's very much a part of me and, yeah, sort of my spiritual homeland. Getting up there feels like I'm home. Through my late uh, primary teenage years, I sort of was able to go out west or go up north and stay on other friends' properties and things. And, yeah, I was always sort of just trying to get that little further west and that little further north to head back. (laughs) Just a little bit further away from the cities. (laughs) What did you love about Kununurra? Like what's the town like? I've only been there once and we just like we we were there for one night so I don't feel like I experienced it at all. Oh, Kunners. I just I love Kununurra. It's just so beautiful. You know, you're in this small town. But you can go for a morning walk up to Miramar, which is a little national park right there on the edge of town, and, you know, you can just feel like, yeah, you're just in a really sacred, beautiful place. And I love love cultural diversity. I love the fact that, you know, it's about 50% of Indigenous Australians living in Kununurra, which sometimes can be really confronting because it does really confront you with um, the social issues. But I love that because I think it keeps it real and it keeps it raw and in your face. You don't forget. And, yeah, just the country. It's just so dramatic. It's, I guess because it's my, chi- my childhood memories were there, the smells and, yeah, the red dirt, just, yeah, pretty amazing. How big is it? Do you know that? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, I think about the time I left was around 7,000, but then during the tourist season it sort of really goes up which has its challenges mm. for the locals. Yeah. Benefits and challenges, I should yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. And there's not it's not that many services up there either. So it's often the fly-in services, isn't it? Especially for health and like if you need you know any of the support services. Yeah, a lot of your specialist stuff, the specialist services, you'd have to they either fly up or you have to fly out. But it is quite well serviced. I mean, you can have, have your babies there. You can, you know, there, there are a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot. I guess that's relative to what you know. And having always lived in rural areas, yeah, Kananara 
it does have some uh, quite a few surfaces. And we haven't come on to talk about Kananara. We've come on to talk about you've had quite a big few years. We actually met through a beautiful mutual friend of ours, and this is long before I actually met you face to face. And she told me about these sisters that were going through the court system from their childhood sexual abuse. And I remember just being blown away by the courage and the bravery that you and your sister took to go through that. So I was like rallying you from here in Armidale without even knowing you, just hearing the story and seeing it and then seeing it come out in the papers. And I just, I remember just thinking, my God, I just, I'm in your corner, 110% I'm in your corner. And then, then we ended up having coffee that day and here we are now doing this podcast. So maybe Aggie, it'd be a good place to start. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your story, maybe starting at the beginning? Yeah. So as I sort of described, we'd, we'd had, you know, there were some issues going on in, in my in my family, as in my mum's second marriage was breaking down. And so my sister and I ended up going and spending a lot of time out west at my aunt and uncle's place in western Queensland. It ended up happening that I was sexually abused when I was 14 by my uncle. And I guess it... it happened in the context of, um, you know, just being vulnerable for affection and love and and that person, you know, sort of filled a big role in my life of something that was missing. And that secret, it happened at a, we were actually on a family holiday away from the property and um, there was a significant grooming process that led up to a number of incidences that happened and I just kept quiet about that after it first happened obviously I was pretty confused and um, I really adored yeah. my uncle I didn't want a sexual relationship with my uncle I just loved him for you know being that special male adult in my life and I was pretty horrified I internalized that and I went pretty quiet with it. And then at the end of the year, I was actually, I was at boarding school in Toowoomba. And at the end of the year, I went to some open day at a TAFE or something. And I found a pamphlet on child sexual abuse and particularly incest. So sexual abuse that happens within a family. And it was really only picking up that pamphlet that made me realize that something pretty terrible had happened and that it shouldn't have happened. And so I think it might have been the following year that I eventually told my mother. And so it ended up coming out. You know, my uncle was confronted, my aunt knew, and I think everyone was just so sidelined by it that they believed it wouldn't happen again. That was a really big mistake because not not long later it, it did happen again to my sister and the offences were more intense offending against her. Oh, my God. And to think that as a child to be able to speak out and tell someone and then think that it's going to stop and then it to happen again, I just, this is why we're having these conversations, Aggie, isn't it, so that we can try and stop family violence, sexual violence. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just part of the grooming is that it's not just the child that's groomed. It's actually the family system that becomes groomed. And so there were all these sort of justifications and, and rationalizations, you know, that was trying to rationalize what had happened with me 
But then the grooming process for my sister actually looked really different, you know, and when we've only been able to talk about this in the last two years, really, we've never talked about that until now. And But, you know, the grooming process for her was really targeting what she needed to hear and what, she, what her vulnerabilities and needs were. And when you say that you spoke to your uncle, did you go over with your mum or did your mum approach them or what did that look like after you telling your mum? Yeah, look, my mum was going through her second marriage breakdown. She also had some substance use issues and she was not really coping with life. She believed me, but I think it was she didn't know. Like, yeah, she just didn't have the skills to deal with it. And I look, the exact sort of timeline of things is, is still – you know, it's, it's not quite clear, but the first person I told was actually a school friend and then I went to a counsellor the following year. So my mum wasn't one of the first people I told. And the counsellor was actually the drama teacher and I think she was working outside her scope of practice uh, and she encouraged me to write a letter and then go and confront my uncle. So I did actually do that. So I was out at the property because it had because of yeah because of what the breakdown at home happening, the property my my aunt and uncle's property had become our home our second home and so I was out there and I did confront him, and then yeah when I was in grade twelve and so that sort of just all went silent still and then mum then I must have told mum then in. Grade 12, he finally told his wife and we did drive out. We drove out, yeah. And what was his reaction when you confronted him? Yeah, he, he, he was sad because I was really distressed. He was actually, he actually just said, oh, Baba. I was like, well, I'm not your Baba. No. Yeah. I mean, he, he knew he, yeah, he could see that I was really distressed. Yeah. I can't even imagine what those few years would have been like for you, Aggie, going through that and then, you know, as we've spoken about, coming out, speaking about it, having it bought above the table and then knowing that it happens again. Like I just I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you and your family. Look, Ali, it was it's a lesson of how to do it better, what happened for my sister and I because mm. it, it wasn't handled well. And when it came out that it had happened again to my sister, my aunt did not cope well and she, and she actually was very she was victim blaming and didn't treat my sister well called my sister a homewrecker and drove her off the property and it all just got swept under the carpet. Just no one did anything and that was sort of the end of Sarah's and I really you know, we, we just tried to avoid going out there after that. So it was a really numb time. Yeah, and what did the years look like from then until you decided to take your uncle to court? What happened for you once you had disclosed and confronted and then by the sounds of it had to move on without the support that you really needed at the time? Yeah, yeah, but no, there was, um, there was no support and particularly from within, you know, from family. And I guess I, you know, I'd finished school. I took a year off and went contract mustering up in the Gulf because I just knew I wasn't, I wasn't ready for uni. 
But it was really just get yourself together and get on with it, you know, try to push it down, try to pretend that it didn't really happen because you, you just want to be normal. I mm. was pretty, at that time, I was really focused on wanting to do medicine. So I got back to uni after my year off and that was pretty functional. First year back at uni was good. And then second year, I had been in a serious relationship for a couple of years with a fellow that I'd met up north. And I called, I called that off and I started getting pretty wobbly. I mean, he'd already, he was pretty worried about me. He's like, look, I think you might be developing a bit of a drinking problem and, you know, you're getting pretty off the rails. So I ditched him and just went really off the rails. You can almost get away with at university, can't you? That's the, that's the problem and, and I, I guess it can be masked through those 20s is everyone just goes, ah, she's the life of the party or, you know, they're just out on the turps like everyone else. But that's I, sometimes where I see that trauma really start to vibrate but is still unseen. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And when you have that awareness, when you know, you do start recognising it in other people and you know it's trauma. You just know because there's a self-destructive mm. element to it and there's a just mm-hmm. like a, a person needing to obliterate themselves to be numb and to just not care. So, yeah, look, I, by third year I was really failing. I'd failed quite a few subjects, second semester, second year. So I ended up finding this online external nursing course and I thought, oh, that'll be great. I'll, I'll, be ner- I'll be a nurse and that'll be a great stepping stone to med and then I could earn money while I was studying medicine and so I left. But, again, I was all over the place. You know, I almost went up north and then I was going to go to Sydney and then I went up north. Anyway, eventually I did and took four years to do a two-year degree and uh, the family that I ended up working for at Newry sort of became substitute parents. I was able at that point to um, get some counselling and I, I really fell off the rails that first year that I went up north. I was being pretty self-destructive and I went into Anglicare in Kununurra and I walked in and I was like, oh, is there just anyone I can see? And I went in and they're like, oh, yeah, come back in half an hour. You can see Bev. And uh, she was a clinical psychologist and her background was, was childhood trauma and child sexual abuse. So so I began starting to actually address what had happened. Yeah. Yeah. And by the sounds of it, potentially be heard, really heard and validated for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even, you know, I remember when I was on the station and I actually, this, which is quite unique, I actually asked my aunt and uncle to come up and have a week in therapy with Bev and they did. And I just, at that point, I needed to tell my managers what was going on. I told them that I was getting counselling, but I never told them what for. And the manager just said, you know, he's he's not to step foot here. And it was just for the first time people putting in boundaries of just going, no, like that's not acceptable, Mm. that no, like no. Mm. Because I think until then there'd been no one defining what was right and wrong, you know, and so you'd you'd internalise that this very, very, very blurry line of what was right and what was wrong. And no one's standing there saying that his behaviour is not okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I haven't heard of that where someone's gone into therapy. Like that was my background, but I haven't heard of that where they've gone into therapy for a week. So did you have sessions every day? 
Yeah, because of the distance, basically what we did was, yeah, I invited my aunt and uncle to come up or demanded they come up and we just did it over that week because, yeah, that was just the, the you know, the reality. What was that week like for you? Look, I, I thought that week was, there was so much, I felt that there was so much closure from that week because I had had this sort of opportunity to share, you know, some of the impact. I'd had the opportunity to, you know, confront, a, you know, face-to-face in that sort of safe environment. After that, the energy that I had for life again was incredible and you just you just don't realise how much psychological trauma is just holding in your body and that until it's resolved and dealt with, it's got you, you know. And so after that I just felt, oh, yeah. like shaking it off. It was like, oh, my goodness, this energy that I had. Anyway, so it, it was a very hopeful time. I thought that it was the beginning of some sort of healing for our family and for my relationships with my aunt and uncle. Unfortunately, they didn't follow up with the recommendations that um, he follow through with some sort of offender treatment program or at least just, you know, get some professional help around those behaviours. Unfortunately, I moved back down to Queensland years later and there were just so many red flag behaviours happening again that I witnessed and, and again I tried to bring it up, hey, look, you didn't follow through. With other children? With adults that I could see at that time, drinking, groping, just really inappropriate. And mm. and I could still see there was a lot of rationalising, minimising and denying what had actually sort of gone on with my sister and I that I thought, oh, this is, this is just still really dangerous. So that, that all flared everything up again and I went back into therapy again. And, yeah, it was just, again, you know, often the victims of child sexual abuse take on a very responsible role. They're trying to be responsible for all this stuff. And that's what I was doing. You know, I was, I was sending the information about, you know, excellent offender treatment programs. You know, I was burning copies of podcasts yes. about it and sending it to them saying, please, you know, follow through. It's almost that you just don't want them to harm anyone else as well, right? Like you want to, you want to heal from your experience, but you don't want them harming anyone else in this world. And that fear that that could still be happening is, I think sometimes where that responsibility is driven from. Oh, absolutely. And because, you know what they're capable of. It's very hard for other people to Mm -hmm. get their head around that, particularly when they're considered to be upstanding members of a community or well-regarded or, you know, a good bloke. You're the only one, if you've experienced child sexual abuse, you, you know what people are capable of. It's very hard for someone that hasn't experienced or had it touch their world to really believe that that is someone's capable of that I think unfortunately once those those curtains are pulled back it's almost like you see it everywhere or you know you believe everyone <laughs> like it's it's kind of two sides of the fence often yeah 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 so what happened for you to then end up in court like how did it go from here to there look at that time in Charleville, so that's sort of 12 years ago, I, I did go, I spoke to Bravehearts and I did speak to the police. But at the time, my sister and I had dealt with things really differently and we'd had different life experiences as well, I guess, that, um, you know, was shaping the way we were 
living our lives. And at the time, my sister had actually sort of reconnected with the family and she had a really close relationship with our cousins. And for her, that sense of belonging and family that being with the cousins gave her, that need was stronger than, you know, the other stuff that was going on. So, you know, she was very much still part of the family, had sort of got, you know, returned to the family. And I knew that if she wasn't on board with legal proceedings, just I, I just couldn't do that without her. And also, too, when it's family, you know, you, you are aware of the impact that it's going to have on your cousins, that it's going to have on others. Mm. It's really, really difficult. It is so complicated. It's this web of like people connected in and and we had a podcast earlier in the season with Virginia Tapscott and we were talking about this, like it's just so interconnected and for you to speak up and speak out has an impact on so many other lives and it's almost like we need to find a way that victims can speak without, without that fear of them having this influence, this kind of ripple effect going out. Oh, absolutely. And look, even that mindset is still part of the, the victim taking responsibility. And look, at the time I had gone back to therapy with a very good trauma therapist and family therapist and he just said, look, you know, your relationship with your sister has time. And he also said that, you know, going through the legal process can actually cause more trauma for victims. You know, the justice system's got a long way to go. And he was very mindful about, I guess, my own, my well-being and and that sort of thing. But I I really Mm. struggled with that because I felt this incredible burden of responsibility and this burden to just protect others. But I I waited. And then I guess what sort of came up in the last three years is that um, my sister... I guess, had some experiences that brought it up for her and she was then, I guess, facing the reality of what had actually really happened. She'd sort of put that in a box. And there were some more red flags and there were some more conversations and there were some more suggestions about offender treatment programs, some help and things, and it just it got to a point where it was like, Mate, it's just this is it's time to do it. And my sister and I were on the same page with that. What did that look like once you decided that you were thinking about doing it? What did that journey look like? Yeah, okay. So um, we individually rang, I think, like our nearest police station or something and just said, oh, look, you know, we're going to make a statement. We want to, you know, go down the process of placing charges. They have a special team, the Sexual Crimes Unit, and particularly for the children. We had a detective from Brisbane came up. I was living, oh, we were sort of in, well, COVID had just happened actually. So we were in Toowoomba. We we moved out to the family farm a couple of hours out of Toowoomba. So I just had to drive back into Toowoomba and I, I met with the detective there and they just record you, you make a statement, you, you tell what you can remember and, and your story and things. And then my sister did the same process in Brisbane. We were fortunate in that we were able to provide quite a bit of other evidence through letters and diary entries. The police also asked me if I would be willing to try to do a pretext call, and I was willing to do that. My sister wasn't. 
It's it's not an easy thing to do. And a pretext call is where you go to the you go into the police station and you ring the perpetrator, the accused, and they don't know that you're at the police station and that it's all being recorded. So we did it. We did a pretext call, and in that call, he admitted to what he had done. Yeah. So that that also was some really good evidence for the case. Yeah. So uh, going through the justice system is not for the lighthearted, uh, for the faint-hearted. It's really, really tough. No. Yeah. It is beyond tough. I think that's why your um, therapist at the time would have said this isn't always, you know, you need to pick your heel and if we can work through therapy and heal, then sometimes that's the option. But for others, it's going through the court because what were the hard parts about that when you say the justice system isn't for the faint-hearted? What do you mean by that? Well, because it's through state prosecutions, it's not like you're paying for your own legal representation. You're at the whim of a, a much bigger beast. And, you know, we started with one detective and and she had a particular way of working and said, look, this is the process and this is how I'm going to work through all the witness statements. And then she was transferred. And so then we had another detective who was also excellent but had a very different way of working. And it took, from when we did the first statement, it was 12 months until he was charged, which I actually thought was really quite quick. Uh, I didn't had high expectations of it being a a swift process and we weren't actually told that he was going to be charged that week I was left a voice message on my phone to say I just want to let you know we've arrested your uncle today it pushed me to my ability to cope in a way that nothing else ever has and it was unbelievable because you think well if I've lived through being abused and going through that justice system and I was dangerously depressed at times yeah struggling really struggling it's almost like the cup just filled and then it started overfilling you know like there's only so much you could take you may have been living with this for so long but bringing it to the surface and having to voice it and having to stand up and having to tell the detectives and you know like having a community hear about it as well like once it's out there's other people talking about it right yeah absolutely and I mean the first Like once you do the statement until he was charged, you actually can't talk about it. So we chose Mm. to tell almost no one because the bush, you know, once you tell someone, you know, they tell someone, you know, bush telegraph. So that Mm. that was isolated. That was tricky. And then yeah, once he's charged, I mean, look, we're this is a big, you know, we're a really well connected Queensland family. It's intergenerational connections and friendships and uh, like this the bush community and it, it rocked it because it's unexpected it's people people find it really hard to integrate digest yes the, this this couple that they know with you know these charges yeah yeah what were people's reactions you know what did you see sadly ali i would say that it still really showed how far we need to go to change attitudes in Australia and particularly in regional Australia around issues of child sexual abuse. And I think there continues to be a lot of victim blaming. There continues to be just people just don't want to talk about it. It was really actually quite Mm. shocking, the ongoing silence. 
I mean, it wasn't silent. I mean, I know in the background there was a lot of people talking, but it was still just your old stable friends who knew about it the whole, you know, who who were sort of supporting you the whole way through that did Mm. that. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost, you know, you can understand when you talk about that being one of your lowest moments. It's like you've come and you've made this big decision and then there's this silence echoing throughout the community, not behind, not when you're not there, but when you're there. It's like people aren't stepping into that limelight and holding space and having the tough conversations. They're being silent. Yeah, yeah. Which in a way can feel like it's supporting the abuse, even though it may not, that might not be what their intention was. It can feel like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And are there things that you know now that you didn't know before? I don't mean about the abuse. I mean about the experience of going through the justice system and like when you look back through because, man, you've had a freaking tough ride. Like I just am sitting here listening just thinking what an incredible woman sitting in front of me. But when you think back through all of that, are there things now that you've learnt or things you didn't know before that you now know? Look, I don't know if there's anything, I mean, obviously I know I now know a little bit about the justice system. I think it's more just the actual transformation that's come from going through the process. And, I mean, look, to begin with there was that sort of silence and I think once we actually had the sentencing hearing and then people, it was sort of a bit the lines in the sand now, there have actually been some incredible conversations that have come post the sentencing and within myself when I said earlier, like I was a lot, I am, I'm a lioness at the moment. When I walked out of that courtroom, I just, it was the most incredible feeling. I just felt so strong about what we had done and why we had done it and how important it was, you know, not just for us, but for every child, every young person. And to just be part of something that's going enough, no more, I will make this different for my 14-year-old self. You know, I'm doing that now for her at 41, but I'm doing it for my children Mm. and I'm doing Mm. it for, you know, yeah, for for the future of trying to address Every child out there, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, for the listeners out there that are listening that may have experienced sexual abuse or may have a child that's experienced sexual abuse, I mean, they're going to be hopefully sitting there like I was when I first heard your story, just being so like behind you and just your biggest cheerleader because it does, it takes so much, so much guts and courage to stand up and confront the abuser to confront the community, to stand in the space, to go through that justice system over 12 months. Like you say you're expecting it to be longer, but let's just stop for a moment and realise that was 12 months of your life that you had no idea of how it was going to unravel or what was going to happen or what conversations were going to come up. And I just think that like... Yes, we need more people speaking out, but my God, just thank you for speaking out and having the courage to do that for, like you said, for every child out there and every family out there that's been through it and hopefully to prevent it from happening. You know, I believe we can stop family violence, sexual violence. I I do. I believe that to my core. I think we're not there yet, but I do believe if we have enough conversations and there's enough education and enough programs that hopefully, you know, we can at least minimise it significantly from where it is today. Yeah, yeah. And Ali, just to clarify, it was a two-year process for us. It was the, we did our statement, 
a year later he was charged, but it took another year after that to reach that point of the sentencing hearing. And I guess that's part of that, the justice system being hard because you'll have a mention and then it's put off again and then you get a date set and then that's pushed back again. And, I mean, we were really fortunate in the sense that we didn't go to trial. Our uncle pleaded guilty, you know, admitted to guilt, and that then meant that we didn't have to do a trial. How long did he get for admitting to his guilt? Look, uh, he was charged with 10 counts of indecent treatment of a child under 16, and that is because the legal system, you can only be charged with what the laws were at the time of the abuse or at the time of the crime. For 10 counts, that was three for me and seven for my sister, that he was given four years and six months of those he needed to actually do in prison. The accumulative total was actually, I think, somewhere between 15 and 20 years, but they choose to, in the legal system, they can serve that time concurrently. So even though each of his crimes added up to 15-plus years, he can serve it concurrently and six months actually in prison. Which I think six months is what you get if you steal some cattle too. I was just, you know, I was just thinking that in my head. I was like, hmm, and what else do you get for six months? Like it's that's just insane, isn't it? Look, it is. And the justice system has such a long way to go. And look, in, in some ways, if as a family, the members of the family who needed to step up, if they had been able to step up and you know, access the offender treatment program that I had recommended out of WA. There's Safe Care. There's an incredible woman, Christabel Shamaratti, who has been working with offenders for 30 or 40 years. And uh, she started her career as a psychologist in jails. And what resonated with me so much, I met Christabel in person in the Kimberleys and then later, you know, look, looked up her treatment programs, is, is her compassion, you know, her compassion for an offender, and her thing was that, you know, if we actually want to stop child sexual abuse, you know, we also need to be able to recognise when there may be, like, teenage behaviours that are happening or pre-offending behaviours, and we also need to have compassion for offenders that they can actually say, I am having these feelings, I'm having these inappropriate desires, I need help, where do I go and get help? And as a community, you know, actually being able to do that because unfortunately the outcome of, of the justice system as it is now is that it can continue to fracture families and communities because it's this one side or the mm. other side. And then there, there's this ongoing relation, relational trauma that happens that you feel like, oh, well, this is really unjust. You know, where's justice in that when a family's been divided so, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. It's been just after the court case, just having some really amazing conversations with people about justice and restorative justice. And, you know, I had a little look at Norway and, and they have a really different justice system over there that really focuses on developing empathy in perpetrators of crimes. And what does life look like for you now? Look, we came out of that court case, out of that courtroom and... I think the fires were burning. Uh, for me, I felt a deep sense of completion. I felt like it's done. I needed to go through that process a long time ago. 
and I wanted to mm. see it to the end. I wanted to know that I had done everything that I could to, yeah, to, to make sure it didn't happen to someone else. And but we had a really small group of really close friends that attended on the day and we've sort of formed a bit of a, a Lady Justice WhatsApp group and um, we've talked about doing more. But it's just, it's going to be a slow burn because it has been so nice to just shed all of this and to just be present, to yeah. to appreciate where we are now. My husband and I relocated from Queensland down to New South Wales last year. We had the move going on with all of this as well and my husband's family have given him the opportunity to, to manage a family farm here so, yeah, we're just sort of throwing ourselves into the new community and I went back to study this year. I've left behind my mental health nursing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I ended up in the child and adolescent mental health nursing and I think a lot of that was driven by, you know, my old ghosts. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like I can just contribute to the community in a different way now. And are you still living with it every day? Yeah. 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 Yep. If we could all, all the listeners and I, do something after the, listening to this podcast to make some small change or some way support you going forwards and your sister, is there something that comes to mind? Yeah. Look, the Australian Childhood Foundation, just after the court case, I get an email because I subscribe to the Australian Childhood Foundation through my work as a, as a child and adolescent mental health nurse and they have some amazing tools around trauma and they launched this project called Emma's Project. So she's a young woman who was sexually abused and she approached the Childhood Foundation to, I think she's been um, approaching them for a while, to get this project up and going to get surveys from adult survivors to contribute to information to build programs for community parents, community, the Australian public in the future based on that wisdom of survivors so that we can make a difference. So I think if anyone could just get on board and keep keep a finger on the pulse with the Australian Childhood Foundation and what they're going to produce in the coming months, years, you know, as they collate all this information and I think also, you know, safecare.org, that's the organisation in WA that Christabel started. It has some incredible resources, resources for, you know, wives of perpetrators, resources around, you know, preventing child sexual abuse. I just, there's so much that the community needs to do to just educate themselves more. And there is actually a lot of information out there. It's mm. just knowing where to look. Yes, and we'll pop both of those on our show notes and also in the Challenges That Change Us community. Um, and, Aggie, is there something that I haven't asked you in this interview that you would like to talk to? I think in terms of, you know, if you're talking about, you know, a question and, and who we're sort of talking to today, I think it's really around that, that sense that protecting children is the responsibility of all adults you know it is not just up to you know the parents or or the immediate family but this is a community thing and I think that's another reason that our, um, our court 
process was just so incredibly powerful. So we had an absolutely amazing judge. And she just saw through everything so clearly. And, you know, she she really commented on the fact that, you know, the community had known, that the family had known, and no one did anything. And she just said that reflects mm-hmm. so extraordinarily badly on the family and the community. And look, can I say that now that could feel very pointed and, and that may make people feel defensive, but I think if we just use this now as an opportunity to just go, we need to learn more. We need to learn more about how mm-hmm. we can do this better and we need to learn the skills mm-hmm. to have those hard conversations about, you know, what's going on and to be able to say to a young person utterly clearly, it is not your fault. You were a child. You had the needs of a child. They were an adult and, it was, you know, it's the adult's responsibility to, to set the boundaries, to create, you know, the right, you know, healthy relationships and that that message just needs to be given to all children that it is not their fault and that it is the yeah. adult's responsibility to deal with it. And, um, you know, that I think when, when I was in court, that was the one thing that, like in my victim impact statement, that absolutely choked me up was when I said for the first, like the day that I went to the police and gave, you know, my statement was the first time that I felt like someone else was going to take this from me, you know, and the justice system took it from me. And that is what was so powerful about going through the justice system. And I think what you're talking about there is that like heavy blanket weighted feeling that often the sexual assault survivors walk with it around them, in front of them, over them for so much of their life. And what what you're talking about there, Aggie, is some of that healing space where you can shred that coat and you don't it doesn't have to be a part of you and in you. It's not something we can't go back and rewrite the script. We never can, but we can choose how we want to live our life and we can absolutely through lots of different avenues. And it looks different for everyone from counseling to talking to friends, to doing sport. To, there's a, a number of ways that we can do it, but you can start the healing journey. And that's, I guess, one thing that I'd love to say to anyone listening out there that it's never too late to start that. It's never too late to stop feeling like you had a role in this and it's your responsibility. Like you've said throughout this, you know, we need to listen, believe and stop shifting the blame. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. I really love to finish our podcast. This has been quite a heavy podcast. So, you know, it's one of the reasons why I choose this question to finish with is who in your world or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Probably my children. They are just so ridiculous. So funny. <laughs> I always want to. I always want to ask this, so I'm going to ask you. Every time someone says their children, I want to be like, "So, what was the one of the funniest moments you can think of?" Because I have so many from my kids. <laughs> can you think of a time that you really laughed? Look, Ali, I, I know there was there was an absolute hoot of a thing recently, and I cannot. I, I'm just no. I'm 
put on the spot. I, I'm not going to be able to recall it. But there's one. So I've got two children. One's eight. Digby's eight, and Matilda's five. And um, anyway, you know, we're going. Tildy's really a bit of a chronic nose picker, and she just loves to pick her nose and then eat it. And I was like, Tildy, that's yuck. Like picking the nose and eating it is yuck. And she just leaned forward and looked at me. She says, No, mummy, it's yum. <laughs> This is where I think we need to capture the moments for our kids 21st. <laughs> like there's so many moments of parents, isn't there? Yeah. I remember being down at the pig pen. We were down. We've got pigs and chooks and my um, I was down there with I've got three girls, two of the girls, and we're cleaning out the stall and, you know, having a blast. I was like, where is your sister? And she's the baby, right? And the youngest of, you know, youngest of three, so she's an absolute scallywag. And I was like, where is she? This is not good. And so I walked up to the house and I walk in the kitchen and she's on the kitchen bench naked eating ice cream with hot pink lipstick around her lips. I was just like, oh, God, this is still, you are still going to look like this when you are 18 or 21. (laughs) Like, you know, it's those moments as a mom that you just think, oh, I love you so much. I can't parent this moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh absolutely oh it's so funny <laughs> yeah yeah. Aggie, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation. We had a few starts at this, guys. We <laughs> did the first one and neither of us, we hadn't had a proper conversation. And, and Aggie was like, yeah, is it face-to-face? And I was like, oh, no, no, it's on the computer. And Aggie's like, I'm in a public place. I don't think we can do it today. <laughs> so we've actually tried a few times to marry up this this conversation. So even today our headphones weren't working and the computers weren't working, but, you know, what an important conversation to have. And just thank you for being so patient through that process to, you know, have this where people can hear it. And through these conversations, I hope we help others to start their journey, to move along their journey, to believe when someone tells them and to know that we're here. We're here for each and every one of you as well. Yeah, absolutely, Ali. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to talk because um, it's just it's the only thing that really, that sharing of stories that starts to make change. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Whenever I talk to a survivor of sexual abuse, I seem to walk away with such mixed emotions, sadness for all the children that have gone through such a horrific experience frustration at the legal system for being so hard to navigate, confusion around compassion for the perpetrators. How can we create behavior change while still ensuring that they're 100% accountable for their actions and that the community supports the victim first? I nearly always walk away thinking what an incredible person that stands before me, having faced something no person should ever have to, yet here they are telling you their deepest, darkest moments with strength, resilience and courage. We need a world where people, communities and systems all work together to protect children from sexual abuse. I usually mention statistics at the start of the podcast, but today I want to leave you with them so that we can all stand up and do our part to create change in a country we love so much. In 2021, the Australian Childhood Foundation conducted the latest in their series of national community attitude tracking studies about child abuse and child protection. Four key findings from this 2021 survey included 
One in three Australians would not believe children if they disclosed they were being abused. One in five Australians are not confident of being able to recognise that a child is being abused or neglected. One in five lack confidence on what to do if they suspect a child is being abused or neglected. And child abuse rates are lower than the problems with public transport and roads on the list of community concerns. If you want to do something today, jump on Braveheart or the Australian Childhood Foundation website and read all about the stats, how you can help and what to look out for. We will be back next week with another episode. Thank you everyone for listening today and I hope you have a happy, safe and well week. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. Oh, 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 oh,